that evening, folks, and welcome. This is Reggie from Destination Venus, and it is time to go geeking. We've got a, a mixed show for you this evening, although it is mostly me. We are a little pushed for time in our schedule at the moment, uh, with the shop being open, and we haven't been able to get organised a couple of the interviews that I want to get done. They will get done. We've got some great interviews coming in the nearish future, but not tonight and not next week for reasons I will talk about at the end of the show. But for now, we've got some not exactly half the press geek news and some other stuff to talk about. So let's start with something that's been kicking around the Internet now for a couple of weeks. It's something that shouldn't be controversial in my view, but apparently it is. And that is the Netflix TV version. Can we call Netflix TV? I think we can. Uh, the Netflix TV version of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Now, if you are a comics fan of a certain age, Sandman means one of two things to you. Either you think it's the biggest load of pretentious old twaddle that you've ever come across in your life, or you love it utterly. I am a comics fan of that age. I am just coming up to 50. I was in my late teens when Sandman first hit the shelves. Yes, I am that old, and so is it. I fall into the latter category. I love Sandman. I think it's probably still the best thing that Neil Gaiman ever did. It's not perfect. Nothing is. But it is something that does actually stand up to the test of time. And it is something that had a profound effect on me at a particular time in my life. Um, Sandman accompanied me through university. And as a massively pretentious goth type, it hit me in exactly the right place, and it still does. So I'm protective of Sandman. I have lived in fear of a mediocre adaptation of Sandman for some time. And if I thought that's what we were going to get, I would begin it. But I don't think it is. I think this looks really exciting. And I'm afraid it looks exciting to me because of many of the things that people are complaining about. So, if you are not a comics fan, or you are a young person, what's Sandman about? Before I get into the adaptation, what is Sandman? Okay. Complicated is the first answer. It ties in with some true life events. It sort of reaches back into DC history a little bit. And then it just twists things over and produces a story that is at once enthralling and thought provoking. It concerns a family. In the end, everything in Sandman comes back to family, in my view. But it's not an ordinary family. It's a family of sort of elemental 
beings. The endless family. They have always existed, they will always exist, as long as there are sentience. Because each one of them, each one of the family, is a manifestation of a concept. The oldest of the family, Destiny, is a very serious man. Uh, he speaks little. He carries the Book of Fate. His younger sister, the second oldest, is Death. Now, in the comics, Death is a very perky, cheerful goth girl. And if you think that that's a contradiction, you don't know many goths. Uh, and Death is always there in people's lists of favourite characters. Death always crops up because she's great. Uh, I love Death. I have her on many T-shirts. The character of Death is one of the things that has turned out to be controversial in this show, and we'll get to why in a bit when we get to casting. Younger than Death, but older than the others. Destruction. A wayward brother, the prodigal of the family. He's abandoned his responsibilities and, um, well, look around the world, you see the result. Behind him are the twins, Desire and Despair. Desire is arrogant, amoral and utterly irresistible. Despair is... Well, despairing. Then there's Dream, the Lord Morpheus, the titular Sandman, if you like. Um, he's a strange creature. Um, tall, somewhat aloof, very mysterious, quick to anger. He's a very confusing personality. And at the heart of the story. And then finally, the youngest sister. She was, once, delight. But humanity and human culture affects the endless and their personalities. And because of the way humanity has gone, many centuries ago, delight became delirium. She is, let's just say, She's confused, unpredictable, and therefore, given the level of power that all of the Endless wield, dangerous. That's the Endless. The story starts, at least in the comics, I've got no idea where they're going with the show, but the story starts with an occult ceremony. Uh, an occultist has imprisoned Dream. For many years. That's why we got the sleeping sickness at the end of the First World War, because nobody was taking care of dreams. At the beginning of the story, Dream breaks out of his captivity. His vengeance is quite severe. We then follow him back to his kingdom, the Dreaming, the Land of Nod, where we meet Cain and Abel, who are established DC figures 
in the DC universe, they have always lived in the House of Secrets and the House of Mystery. Both of these can now be found in the Dreaming. And that is one of those clever little touches that Gaiman drops in throughout his storytelling, because it's biblically accurate. Uh, when Cain kills Abel in the, Bi the Bible story, Cain is banished to the land of Nod. I know, genius, yeah? Land of Nod? Sleep? Dream? Yeah? Yeah. Clever. And so we then meet the rest of the cast of characters. There's Matthew the Raven, who is Dream's Herald. There's Lucian, the librarian of the Dreaming, in whose library can be found every book that was never written. Every book that somebody dreamt of writing but never did. Fantastic concept. Comes in very handy as a plot point in many parts of the story. I'm not going to tell you any more about the story of, of The Sandman. It was 75 issues plus some one-off bits and pieces. It was a work of pure brilliance. There really is no other way to describe it. It's absolutely fabulous. If you haven't read it, I can only encourage you to do so. Uh, it's available, it's still in print, it's available as trade paperback collections uh, from Destination Venus or any other half-decent comic store. And actually, I don't think I've got volume one at the moment, so uh, there you go. So on to the adaptation. It's been a long, long time coming, this, because Gaiman has been fiercely protective of the IP. I don't think he, he doesn't own it. It belongs to DC. But it's one of those things that if they did something with the Sandman and Gaiman was against it, that'd be controversial. I mean, they'd still do it. I mean, they made a watchman over the, the wishes of Alan Moore. So, you know, if they're prepared to upset Alan Moore, they'll certainly be prepared to upset Neil Gaiman. But it would probably damage the success of the show if Gaiman was against it. So the first tranche of casting was announced a while ago. We've got Tom Sturridge as Dream himself, Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer, which I thought was a brilliant casting choice, uh, Sanjeev, Bashir, Bash, Sanjeev Baskar and Asim Chowdhury are Kane and Abel, respectively, uh, with Charles Dance as the occultist Roderick Burgess. Um, a bit of a twist from the comics, because uh, we don't have a Lucian, we have a Lucienne, uh, and she is played by, um, and I'm going to get the last name wrong because I've never heard it pronounced out loud, uh, Vivian Akimpong, I think is how you pronounce it, huge apologies if I get it wrong, uh, and Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian, who is a nightmare, both figuratively and literally. Um, there are creatures who are night nightmares who reside in the dreaming. The Corinthian is one of the worst. Um, and so there was some muttering about whether Lucian should be female or not, but ultimately Lucian's gender is not cogent to the story and people seem to have been prepared to let it go. Now, we have some other casting announcements. Playing Desire, we have Mason Alexander Park. Um, 
Now, that's caused some controversy because it's being played as non-binary. Well, that makes perfect sense because that's how desire is in the comics. You desire desire regardless of your gender or your sexual orientation. Desire is what you desire desire to be, if that makes sense. So, of course, they're non-binary or gender fluid. That doesn't The character doesn't make sense otherwise. Uh, Donna Preston is despair. Uh, people seem to be quite happy with that. Um, we've got Razan Jamal as Lita Hall, who will become important later in the story. Um, as will Kayo, Kayo Ra as Rose Walker. Um, rather excitingly, we've got Stephen Fry as Gilbert. Um, and we've got Pan Oswald voicing Matthew the Raven. I presume that Matthew is probably going to be a mix of practical effects and CGI. I really hope they go with decent practical effects. Uh, Grogu, or Baby Yoda, uh, in The Mandalorian has shown us how effective a puppet can be in a show like this. So I really hope they go with practical effects. Um, and Pat Oswalt has shown us uh, by voicing Happy, the little blue cuddly unicorn imaginary friend in Happy over on Netflix, which, again, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. We did a whole episode of the Geeks of the Gates on Happy. It's a fabulous show, uh, unless you're easily offended, in which case, don't. Um, now, his voice work is pretty good. Uh, Matthew is not exactly a comedic character, but I think Oswalt's comic timing will be useful in there. Um, the Mystic John D uh, will be played by David Thewlis, which again, I think is a brilliant choice. Um, and something I'm very excited about, Jenna Coleman, Clara herself, um, is going to play Joanna Constantine, who is an ancestor of Conjob himself, John Constantine. The one that's caused the biggest controversy, though, is the casting of death. Uh, before I, I say any more, I'm just going to say, with the exception of Stephen Fry, Patton Oswalt, and David Thewlis, I don't know who any of these people are. I may or may not have seen them in stuff, but I don't recognise any of them. I don't know any of the names. So I'm coming to this joyously blind. I don't care who these people are. All I care about is whether they will make a good job they're portraying the characters they're portraying, and from what I can see, they will. So, death is to be portrayed by Kirby Hal Baptiste. And there were howls of anger across the Twitterverse. Because, as I said, in the comics, death is a perky young goth girl. She's very white. She's very very, very white indeed. Kirby Hal Baptiste is black. And a lot of people are very cross about that. Um, it has been pointed out that the look of death was actually based on a real person, a person who's sadly not with us anymore. She was uh, a woman called Cinnamon Hadley. She was a goth-looking woman who was known to Neil Gaiman. They were friends, I think. Um, she sadly passed in 2018 after um, 
a long time with cancer. And there's a, a body of opinion on the internet that death should look exactly like her. And do you know what? No. No. She shouldn't. For a couple of reasons. First of all, Cinnamon Hadley was a real person who is not with us anymore. Now, I presume that she and Gaiman spoke about Gaiman using her look as the character designed for death. Um, but she's not around to say, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. No, fine. Put my face on this fictional character in a TV show that I know nothing about because I'm not here anymore. Also, you know, she's not with us anymore. She has friends. She has family. Maybe they would not like to see her look ripped off in a new piece of art. And in any case, what we need to play a character as pivotal as death, she really is important. Her personality, the character that she brings to the story is really important to the story. We need someone who can do that well. We don't want to be going out looking for someone who fits a particular look. We want to be going out looking for somebody who fits a particular personality, who protects a particular presence. And I didn't see the auditions. Clearly, I did not see the auditions. But if Kirby Hal Baptiste is the woman who could do that, then fine. Because you know what? The ethnicity, or the bearing in mind these characters are not even human, the apparent ethnicity of death has nothing to do with who she is. And in any case, the Endless are not human. They are manifestations of human concepts. They are anthropomorphic personifications. They can be anything. It, it, Neil Gaiman has come back at people whining about all of this. And it, I'm sorry, but it is a sec it is that section of fandom again that just whines about stuff. He has said in response to some, somebody actually accused Neil Gaiman on Twitter of not caring. And, and I, I don't know Neil Gaiman. I've met him twice, I think. Um, but if you read what he's written about this stuff, if you read the interviews he's given about this stuff, it's really clear that he cares a lot about the Dreaming and the Sandman and all of this. So he pointed out that he spent 30 years battling against bad movie versions of the Sandman. And I don't actually don't think you could do Sandman as a movie. It's too long. Um, it'd need to be a, an extensive franchise. And, you know, I don't think they'd ever get to the end if they tried to do it as movies. TV, easily the way to go. He also said he gives zero Fs. He didn't censor himself. I am censoring me. He gives zero. He, he, he gives all the Fs about the work. He gives zero Fs about the people who either don't understand or haven't read Sandman. So, yeah, I think I'm on board with that. It could well be that the show in the end turns out to be awful. And if it does, I will be sad and probably annoyed. But I'm not about to prejudge it. Nothing that I see in the publicity so far tells me that they're 
ignoring or disregarding what makes the Sandman the Sandman. In a way, and this is an interesting comparison, I've not watched The Watch, which is a BBC America show based, and I'm putting that word in heavy air quotes, on Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. The reason I haven't watched it is because what I see in the publicity build-up for that show did make me think that if the people behind the show had ever read Terry Pratchett, they'd ignored quite a lot of it. Um, and the, the, the reaction of some fans of Sandman to them making Desire non-binary, I think is relevant here because one of the things they did in The Watch that was a decision I hated was they made the character of Cheery Littlebottom non-binary. Now, before you tell me that I'm a hypocrite because I'm all for Desire being non-binary, context, my friends, context. You see, Desire makes sense as a non-binary character. I, I don't think they were explicitly tagged as non-binary in the comics. Um, they behaved as such. I'm not sure I would have known what non-binary meant in the early 90s, to be honest. And in any case, the character's gender, as I said, kind of needs to be either neutral or fluid for the character to work. Um, Cheery Little Bottom is very different. Cheery, if you don't know the Discord series, and if you don't know the Discord series, what have you been doing? Um, and if you don't know the, the Discord series, Cheery is a dwarf. Um, she is a sort of the forensic department of the Ankh Morpork City Watch. Ankh Morpork being the big city on the Discworld where many, if not most, of the books take place. In the, the world of the Discworld, dwarves are very private about gender. They've all got beards. They've all got massive beards. They all go around in iron boots with iron helmets carrying battle axes. Whether they are male or female makes no difference. And your average non-dwarf, just by looking, cannot tell the gender of a dwarf. And... Culturally, all dwarves on the disc use male pronouns. They're all he, him. One of the, the, the character notes, one of the character points of Cheery is she decides she wants to be openly female. And there's a whole, there's a whole subplot about this as she's she slowly goes from maybe wearing a, a hard-wearing leather kilt to then having slightly high heels on her boots and then maybe accessorising the battle axe a little bit. And it, it's, it's, it's very cleverly done, and it's a, it's a metaphor for non-conforming sexuality. And like all the things Terry Pratchett does, it, it was subtle and equally not subtle. And being a girl is so, being female is so intrinsic to who the cheery of the books is. I can't, 
I think they're taking something away if they make her anything other than her. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I think this kind of, of orientation swapping, ethnicity swapping, gender swapping stuff can be a bad thing if the aspect of the character, the gender or the, the ethnicity or whatever, that you're changing matters to the character. I don't see that that applies to the Sandman at all. Uh, I see no reason why you couldn't have made Morpheus female. I don't see any reason why death couldn't have been male. Um, I like that she isn't, but I don't see why you couldn't have changed that. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ramble on about this anymore because I've been rambling on it for nearly half an hour now and I think you can all see where I'm coming from. The ultimate point is we need to trust the creators. If they do a bad job, we are free to not watch it. If they do a bad job, we'll still have the comics. Because that's the other thing. Nobody's ruining your childhood. They can't take away the experience that I had reading Sandman in the 90s. They can't take... You know, no one's going to sneak into my attic and take out, steal all my issues. Or you know, they're not coming in with a, a crayon and colouring in death. That's not going to happen. The thing that I love, the comics of Sandman, they ain't changing. I wouldn't want an adaptation to be identical. What would be the point of that? Tell me the story. That's all I care about. And I think I trust Neil Gaiman to do that. Was that the boring, boring preachy bit? Have we just finished off with the boring, boring preachy bit? Maybe. Anyway, time to move on. And yes, if you have come to recognise that jingle, that means it's time for comics recommendations. And I use that term advisedly. These are not comics of the week. These are comics that have been out for a while, in fact. Um, unusually, I'm recording this on a Tuesday, which means this week's comics haven't arrived yet um, because it's a bank holiday week. So then, although the new comics normally arrive on Tuesday, so I can sort them and have them ready for new comic book day on Wednesday, it's a bank holiday week. So they're arriving tomorrow. So don't have them yet. But there's a whole bunch of comics I want to go back and talk about that I haven't talked about yet. And I want to start with a series called Crossover. Now, this is a book that has been sitting on my to-read pile and accumulating. I think we're up to issue six now. Uh, since, well, since before the start of lockdown, really. It came out around the start of uh, about the start of last year, around the end of last year. And, you know, initially, I think I was probably a little bit preoccupied with, you know, the shop at Christmas and all of those preparations. And then suddenly we were in lockdown. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't actually read that many comics in lockdown. Uh, somehow I, I just didn't have the heart for it. Um, I was, you know, pretty focused on keeping the, the business going. And I don't know, I, I just didn't feel... I'm making up for it now. My goodness, I'm making up for it now. But anyway... Uh, so I actually didn't sit down to read the first four issues of Crossover until a couple of days ago, as I record this. And I was 
blown away. I knew something about what it was about, but I was not expecting what I got. So, what is crossover? Well, um, for those of you who are not initiated into the uh, the whole language of comics and stuff, in the parlance of the industry, a crossover is when you have a character from one comic, let's say Spider-Man, appearing in a story that goes over into another comic, let's say The Hulk. So might be a four-part story, part one's in Spider-Man, part two's in The Hulk, part three's in Spider-Man, part four's in The Hulk. That's a crossover. I've got to be honest, both as a reader and a retailer of comics, I find them incredibly annoying. Because it usually means, and, and this is why they do it, it usually means that a bunch of, in the example I've just given you, a bunch of Spider-Man fans who don't normally read Hulk have to buy Hulk for two months, and they probably didn't realise that before the final order cut-off date, so then there's a massive scramble for the Hulk comics, and undoubtedly a whole bunch of Hulk fans who don't read Spider-Man normally have to buy Spider-Man and they can't get the Spider-Man they want. It's a nightmare from a retail point of view, and I've always hated it as a reader. But there you go. I should also say, in this context, when we talk about events in comics, we're normally talking about a big summer blockbuster series where, you know, Marvel is a tinker for these, um, where you've got a main book. Uh, the most recent one at Marvel was called King in Black. But then you've also got that story spilling out into the regular comics. So for the four or five months or the two or three months that the event story is happening, that event story will also affect what goes on in Spider-Man and, and the Hulk and the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and, and, all, and all of that. They're annoying too, for the same reason. Don't like them. But I'm not here to complain about that this time. I want to talk to you about about crossover, and I needed you to know what those two things were. Apologies to all the comics geeks listening who already knew that. And indeed, apologies to everybody else who could probably have worked it out without me patronising you, but hey. So, what's the story about? Well, the idea is that in 2017, something happened, and fictional characters from a whole range of comic books and TV and film and stuff came through into the real world. And that event, and this is why I told you what a comics event was, that event caused a whole bunch of destruction in the way that, well, if you've seen any Marvel movie, you know the amount of destruction that superheroes can cause. Um, and it killed a lot of people in Denver, Colorado. And then one of the heroes, or perhaps several of the heroes in Denver, put up a dome, an impregnable force field, over the city of Colorado. Um, Denver, sorry. Colorado's a state, Reg. Uh, over the city of Colorado. Uh, no, still, still the city of Denver. Do you know what? No, I'm not going to... I was about to say, I'm going to go back and edit this, but first of all, there'll be no point in telling you that. And second of all, Nah, let's leave it in. Nobody needs to think I'm a professional at this. 
So now we live in a world where the city of Denver, Colorado, is isolated and presumably full of superheroes and supervillains and stuff going on. And outside, the world has changed. It's five years later on. And so it's 2022. And a young girl called Ellipsis, or Ellie, to her friends, um, late teens, probably. Uh, she works for a comic book store. And the world's turned against comics because comics and superheroes are blamed for the event that happened in Denver. And, you know, people don't make comics about superheroes anymore. The whole thing is taboo now. And, you know, people are against comics. And against that background, Ellie and uh, Otto, who owns the comic book store, meet a little girl called Ava, who has escaped from inside the dome, and who is one of the fictional characters. You can tell that she is. I'm not going to tell you how. And there's then the story of how Ellie and Otto and a guy called Orion, who, again, I'm not going to tell you what role he plays, but he's one of the good guys. Those three characters try to get Ava back to where she needs to be. Now, it's not a complicated or even particularly original plot in terms of story. It's, however, one of the most astonishingly brilliant and involving comic book series I've read in a long time. And I don't say that lightly, believe me. Um, it's got a good team behind it. Uh, it's created by uh, writer Tony Cates, um, Jeff Shaw, Dee Cunliffe and John J. Hill, who've already worked together on other series at the same publisher. Uh, this book is published by Image. Uh, they worked together on God Country, which was about a guy coming to terms with his father's Alzheimer's uh, and also a massive God-killing sword, and Redneck, which is about um, redneck vampires, basically. And both of those series are very good. This is even better because it's a love letter to comics. It's a love letter to the comics that I've been reading for more than half my life. Three quarters of, oh lord, three quarters of my life. Okay, now I feel old. Um, and that passion for the characters, and I have to say, they use actual characters from actual comic books in this story. I think they've only used characters from Image. They do some very clever things where they make you think they're talking about a character from a, from Marvel or DC, but they're not. Uh, I s it's one of those things. If this had been done at one of the big two, it would have been a licensing nightmare. I suspect because they've done it at Image and they're using, again, as far as I can tell, 
creator-owned characters that are published through Image. I suspect actually what happened is that Donny Cates, Jeff Shaw and, and the rest of the team just got on the phone to their mates and said, can we use your characters, please? I'm fairly sure that's probably how it went. But they've used all these established characters and they've used them well. And it really does feel like a smile. That's basically it. It's a smile made of paper and staples, this series. If you have been reading comics for any length of time at all, I think you'll love this book. It's absolutely fabulous. And as I say, I do not say that lightly. Okay, next up, yet another series that started in lockdown and which has, in fact, now finished. It's called The Last Witch. And it's... I hesitate to call it All Ages because that puts a lot of people off. It's not a kid's book. It is a book that's suitable for kids. I'll leave it there. It's from a writer called Conor McCreary, uh, artist Vivi Glass, colours by uh, Natalia Nesterenko, and letters by Jim Campbell. It's a fantasy series set in an island where magic exists. And because it's set in Ireland, I can't pronounce any of the names. Um, so anybody who is Irish, please forgive me. Um, I'm going to get a lot of these wrong. I'm doing my best. OK. It's about a girl called. I'm going to call her Cerise. I'm pretty sure that's not how it's supposed to be pronounced. Um, she's a young girl, maybe early teens, maybe not quite teens. And it's the day of the, the annual festival in the village. And she goes off into the woods with her little brother in tow because her little brother won't leave her alone because little brothers are like that. And she's warned not to. The tradition is this is the day when you don't go into the forest. But she's a headstrong kid and she wants to go on an adventure. So she does. While they're in the woods, something terrible happens. I'm not telling you what because it would be a spoiler. But Cerise gets Bram, her little brother, out of there and back to the village. When they get back to the village, they find that something even worse has happened in the village. The only survivor is a grandmotherly figure, Nan. Um, I don't know that they actually say that she... No, maybe they do say that she's actually her grandmother, but she's certainly a grandmotherly figure. Nan tells Cerise that the birthmark that she has is in fact a witch mark and that allows her not only to resist magic but to take it for herself and to use it for herself. There then follows a quest of sorts where Nan tries to teach Cerise how to control her powers so that she can battle the evil forces that destroyed the village and are working on destroying the world. It's a really charming 
comic series, uh, five issues long. It's got reasonably high stakes. The drama is reasonably dramatic. Gosh, Reg, that was descriptive. Dramatic drama. English teacher for 16 years. Terrible. Um, but actually, I can't think of another way to put it off the top of my head. But what it's... It's not... It's not scary enough to be too scary for kids, is what I'm saying. Uh, but it's the, the stakes are high enough and the drama is dramatic enough that it's gripping and entertaining for adults too, I think is what I'm saying. It's a very charming story. It's a very satisfying story. Uh, and I loved every minute of it. I really did. And for what it's worth, the ending is not one that I saw coming. So pretty pleased with that. Both of those uh, series uh, don't have collected editions yet, but they will have very soon. Um, I think The Last Witch is out in a couple of weeks, actually. So if you've missed them in singles, and you probably have, because I didn't sell that many copies, if you've missed them in singles, the collections will be available. And to be honest, if you're not an old person like myself, who's grown up around single-issue comics, Waiting for the collected editions actually does make a lot of sense. It's generally cheaper. And um, the collected editions are you know, have cardboard covers like regular paperbacks. They're square bound. They're a lot more robust. Uh, they're a lot harder to destroy. Uh, and so generally speaking, they are significantly better value for money. The only uh, advantage in terms of value for money that single issues have is that trade paperback collections almost never become valuable in their own right. Whereas, you know, first print issue ones of particular comics runs can occasionally become quite sought after and therefore quite valuable. Uh, I will add my standard warning about speculating in comics, which is there's only one way to become a millionaire buying and selling comics. And that's to start as a billionaire and work your way down. Because, trust me, I'm a comics retailer. I know this firsthand. Oh, Lord. OK, so that's The Last Witch. One more recommendation, um, and then we will move on. Now, the final comic I want to talk about isn't even slightly recent. It actually came out in 2016. Um, but it's... Timely, I think. Uh, many of you, if not most of you, will know that June is Pride Month. Uh, had this been a regular June, I would have been trying to work out what stock I was going to take to the annual Harrogate Pride and Diversity Festival. Uh, obviously, for a given value of COVID, that means that, that won't be happening this year again. But it is Pride Month. And so I want to look back to 2016 and an astonishing piece of comics. I want to say comics activism. It's not really comics activism, but it it was in reaction to something. Um, it was a shout of... I was going to say a shout of rage, but again, it isn't, and that's kind of the point. Anyway, what is Love is Love? Love is Love is a 144-page graphic novel uh, which came out 
in 2016 from IDW Publishing in collaboration with DC, um, featuring a whole bunch of characters from loads of different publishers. It was put together in response to the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando um, when a terrorist went into a, a bar popular with gay people and um, shot a load of people to death. It, I, I, I nearly said earlier that it was a, a shout of rage, but it really wasn't. It was an honest reaction to a tragedy that affected a lot of people and made a lot of people who weren't directly affected by it think. And what this comic does is meet hate with love. Every panel of every page of Love is Love is positive. It's not all happy and clappy. There's a lot of sadness in this book. I have read it many times now, and I have never read it without crying at least once. And I'm a big, tough Yorkshireman, so seriously. It's a very moving, very affecting comic. Um, it, it features characters, some well-known, some less well-known. Um, some characters that are well-known for being part of the LGBTQIA plus community, other characters perhaps less well known for being so, other characters who aren't, but who would be regarded as allies in the ponds. It also has the interesting distinction of being the, the, the book that features the first official comic based on the Harry Potter franchise, um, although I think it's more the movies than the books that it touches on. Uh, there's I mean, the list of writers, I'll, I'll stick a link to the Wikipedia page for this uh, in the show notes, because the list of people who are involved is longer than your arm. Um, just more than I could get. All the big names are there. Um, yeah, if you were anyone at all in comics when this came out, um, you contributed and if you weren't, you contributed. Uh, J.K. Rowling has a credit in this book, uh, which is interesting, considering how that went. Um, again, the artist's list is as long as your arm. The inker's list is as long as your arm. I mean, just literally hundreds of people collaborated on this book. Um, and it is just astonishingly astonishingly positive um it's an eisner winning comic uh again if you're not initiated into the uh the jargon around comics think of the eisners as the oscars for comics um love is love won the 2017 eisner for best anthology uh, and deservedly so it also managed to get itself banned in at least one American school for, for its extreme homosexuality. Um, but, you know, that's going to happen somewhere, isn't it? Uh, copies were hard to find for a while. Um, it's something, however, that I've been able to keep in stock. So if you're listening in Harrogate, 
I can definitely get, do you a copy. Um, if you're not listening in Harrogate, hit up your local comic store. I'm sure that they've got one. Uh, and if they haven't, I, I'm pretty sure they can probably get them for you. Uh, they were certainly still generally available last time I needed to do a restock. Um, and although it was produced in reaction to a thing that happened in a particular point in time, because it, its theme is love and acceptance, it's never going to date. All of the stories still work. And uh, so, happy Pride Month. I heartily recommend Love is Love. It's not the only comic that I could recommend for Pride. And you know what? I'll probably be recommending more in future episodes. But for now, that's it for the Comics of the Week. So, you know how I love a jingle, and you know that the best jingle we've got for this show at the moment is the one that introduces the science segment. Which is why I'm extremely disappointed that I don't have any science news for you this week. It's not that there wasn't any, it's just it's been a really hectic week. Uh, what with the shop and the bank holiday and the delivery being late and a whole bunch of other stuff that's just massively got in the way. I have no idea what's happening in the world of geeky science this week. I don't even know if there's been a rocket launch. And honestly, if you knew me well, you would know that me not knowing something like that is extraordinarily unusual. Uh, but I do want to get some housekeeping done. Um, if you are listening on Harrogate Community Radio, I want to apologise in advance for the fact that next week's show will be a repeat. Uh, if you are listening on the podcast feed, I want to apologise in advance because next week's show will be silent. Um, because there won't be one on the podcast feed next week. I don't see any point in putting a repeat up. Uh, and I'm going to be somewhere where there may not be internet and I can schedule a show on Harrogate Community Radio. I can't do that uh, on the podcast feed at the moment for technical reasons that I don't fully understand. Um, big shout out, by the way, to station manager Andy at Harrogate Community Radio for being the most tolerant man in the world. Uh, I hope you've noticed, Andy, if you're listening, that this is the first time ever that I've managed to get a show posted before the day it, it broadcasts. Um, so I hope you noticed that. I'm getting more organised. We're working on it. Um, so apologies for that. We will then get back to normal uh, next week. Oh, and also, if you're listening on the podcast feed, you will have noticed that last week's show didn't actually drop. Uh, again, technical issues. If you're listening to this, it's in the feed now. Okay, I've dropped it in separately. Um, so that's why. Anyway, that's not interesting to people listening to it, not on the podcast feed. So let's move on to our very final thing for this evening. I want to talk about Thought Bubble. Now, I've been getting very excited about Thought Bubble 2021. I missed it terribly in 2020. Uh, there was the online thing that they did, which was great, but absolutely no substitute for being there and not least because Thought Bubble as we have discussed on this show with many people many times Thought Bubble is that weekend of the year when I see a bunch of friends that I've known for maybe some of them some of them I've known for 30 years 
a lot a lot of them I've known for, for at least 20, uh, but that I only see on that weekend. And I missed them last year, and I really want to get back and see them in person. There's only so much you can do on Zoom. But this afternoon, I mean, literally this afternoon, as I'm recording this, and a piece of news broke that I'm so excited about, I can barely contain myself. Um, I've double-checked it. I've triple-checked it. I was not hallucinating, dreaming, or making it up. They've announced a new headline guest for 2021. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that Frank Miller is coming to Thought Bubble. That's Frank Miller. Now, if you are a comics fan, you are now having the same reaction I did. If you're not, a little explanation. Frank Miller is one of the most influential writers in comics in the last 40 years. That's not hyperbole. He wrote two of the defining modern Batman stories. He wrote Batman Year One, which reworked and represented the origin of Batman. And the Year One origin is now pretty much the one that's used and referenced in the films and the cartoons and all of that. Uh, he also wrote Batman The Dark Knight Returns, which was heavily referenced in the film Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice, but don't hold that against it. The book is actually good. Uh, if you remember Bruce Wayne's bat armour in Dawn of Justice, that is pulled straight out of Dark Knight Returns. Um, and what that did, and they came out within a couple of years of each, of each other, Year One and Dark Knight Returns, and basically what Frank Miller did with those two stories is write the origin of Batman and the ending of the story. And for a long time, uh, the editorial stance in the Bat Office was that at any point in time, the current issue of Batman was now. Year one was 10 years ago. And Dark Knight Returns is 10 years in the future. I don't think they hold to that now because there's just too much continuity now to make that work. But year one is still certainly recognised as the definitive origin of Batman. That's not the only thing he did. Um, Frank Miller also in the 80s pretty much redefined Daredevil um, with uh, a story called Man Without Fear. And he did he did with Daredevil pretty much what he did with Batman. He, he brought in a much darker, much more realistic tone um, and made the characters feel real and plausible. Possibly even more so with uh, with Daredevil than he did with, with Batman. But I mean, Batman pre-Miller, um, Batman was mostly associated, unfairly, I have to say, but mostly associated with the campness of the... 1960s Adam West and Burt Ward TV show. Um, post Frank Miller, Batman was something that you could 
take seriously. Certainly, I don't think we would have got the Tim Burton movies without Frank Miller's stories. And as someone who loves those movies, cheers, Frank. As time went on, um, Miller's writing changed. Um, I mean, he wrote Robocop 2, the movie. That's a Frank Miller screenplay. He wrote the comic book series that the movie 300 was based on. I don't know if he had anything to do with the screenplay for 300. I bet he probably did. Um, he did go a bit odd in the 2000s. He, his work became quite right wing. And at least from where I'm standing, of course, where I'm standing is quite left wing. So, you know, all these things are relative. Um, some of his stuff was challenged because people felt it was a little racist, uh, with some justification, I think. Um, and his art style became increasingly stylized, uh, to the point that rather famously, uh, 2000 AD, uh, I forget which anniversary it was, uh, but 2000 AD was doing a special uh, celebration edition and they invited Frank Miller to provide the cover. Uh, Frank's a, a writer and an artist. And it's the only time that 2000 AD actually went public and said, we've turned this down. We can't publish this. It's not suitable for what we want. Um, because the cover that, that Miller offered was a picture of Dread with just no concern for drawing a figure with any kind of realistic anatomy. Um, it was almost cubist, which is fine. Yeah, there's no reason why you shouldn't do that, but it clearly wasn't the brief. Um, he seems to be better now. I, 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 I'm, I'm not an, I don't know everything that's been going on in his life. Why should I? I think there might have been some illness involved. Um, and he certainly appears in the pictures I've seen of him in recent years quite frail, but then he's, of course, quite old now. So I'm really looking forward to an opportunity to just meet him and say thank you for the work he did in the 80s. He's one of the reasons I read comics. He's not the only reason, but he's one of the reasons I read comics. His work is one of the things that got me into comics in the first place as a very cynical teenager back in the late 80s. And I've got to thank him for that. And I really have to thank Thought Bubble for being able to bring him over. That's just fabulous. Okay, it is time to go. All that remains is to thank you for your kind attention. We welcome any comments or queries or suggestions. Uh, email us info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Hit us up on Twitter, uh, where we are at destinationven1, and we're destinationvenus on the Facebooks. Uh, and we're on Instagram as well. Uh, I think we're just Destination Venus on Facebook as well. Uh, on Facebook, on Instagram as well. Uh, so you can hit us up there. Um, we will be back in two weeks' time. Next week will be a repeat or silent if you're on the podcast feed. Um, so we will see you then. Until we do, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to everybody else. Take care. Be safe. Until the next time we all meet again. To go geeking.